Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Wondering where to start? Do you have questions about mortgage and real estate and need honest, accurate answers? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to The Educated Home Buyer with expert real estate broker, Jeb Smith, and certified mortgage consultant, Josh Lewis, where we discuss everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome back, guys. Uh, a little bit different tonight. We are starting with us versus music. I uh, just wanted to come on and change it up a little bit. So we appreciate you guys being here uh, this week. We, you know, didn't get a lot in in with regards to news uh, today. We received ADP jobs report, which is kind of a precursor of what's likely to come on Friday. Uh, if it's if it's like last month, it's going to be a, a hell of a surprise. But numbers came in higher than expected. Uh, what we've seen over the last week is primarily just you know more just sideways movement, um, you know, with, with housing interest rates are up a little bit. Uh, fed has been speaking over the last two days, Powell's come out, you know, a lot of the different people on the fed have, have been speaking with thoughts. And the, the idea is that rates are likely going to go up and stay higher for a longer period of time. So with that, Josh, welcome back to the show. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about rates. Let's not. I don't think anyone wants to. Um, I was actually, I was going to look up. I want to see, um, we had talked about just as recently as like two, three weeks ago that uh, the spread between 10-year treasuries and mortgages was decreasing, kind of normalizing, which it will happen at some point. Um, with the recent pop back up in mortgage rates, uh, it's it's back to basically, I wouldn't say record levels, but back in the last 10 years, it's the highest uh, that we've been there. The, the thing, you know, you had mentioned uh, higher for longer. That's what the Fed is saying. You know, what, what you and I have been saying um, since December, like when we're looking at these numbers and or the projections on the Fed funds futures, and people are saying, oh, by the end of the year, the Fed's going to be cutting. And I'm like, what, what are you watching? That Why would they cut? Uh, their big fear, which was basically put into words by Powell the last two days in his congressional testimony, is that they repeat the mistakes of 1980 and stop too soon. They would rather have a horrific recession that results in inflation getting under control than no recession and inflation lingers higher for, for longer. So they're going to keep taking rates higher. Um, how much higher? I don't know. Because we still believe that in the next couple of months, we're going to see some moderation of data. But what that would do would stop the Fed from hiking, but they're going to keep the rates there. I think, Jeb, as of today, the Fed funds futures have finally stopped pricing out, pricing in any rate hikes this year um, and thinking that it'll be 2024 before we see that. And I think it's going to be well into 2024 before we see that. But I want to go yeah. back and reiterate, that is not mortgage rates. That's yeah. what the Fed controls. Yeah, in fact, I mean the 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 latest probability actually showed that uh, that a small percentage, well, not a small percentage, about fifty percent of traders are, are now expecting a fifty basis point hike in in March, um, which isn't likely to happen. I think we know that the twenty five basis point hike is more or less priced into the market, uh, but there are traders out there believing that that is uh, that there's a case there for for higher rates uh, sooner rather than doing you know, four quarter percent hikes or what have you. So, you know, we get fed, uh, we get what inflation data next week, inflation data next week yeah, and CPI Fed, next week, CPI next week. And then the fed meets the following week, or is it both next week? No, no uh, it, CPI next week, fed is 21st and 22nd. So 
we'll have about a week to to figure you know look at inflation data and then we'll have i believe the fed coming out giving um you know their consensus and i think before the fed ever announces you'll have fed members talking about you know what's likely to happen so there will be a, a you know an idea uh, if you will, of, of what's likely to happen. But at the moment, I think a quarter percent is pretty much what's priced into the market. Now, with that said, um, Josh, you know, we've seen rates go up, um, not just not just because, you know, uh, the market has softened, if you will, but, you know, because of, you know, inflation data and what have you, but it also has to do with with the the loan level price adjustments, right? The LLPAs that were set to come into play with with Fannie Mae changing how some of the, um, you know, adjustments were uh, going to be affecting new buyers. So why don't we take a minute here and just talk about that? Who Who is getting affected by this? Because it's important to know if you're buying a house out there, it's not just the change in rate that is, you know, that's affecting you. It's it's these price adjustments as well. Yeah. So right now, what what happens is a lender lenders put mortgages into pools, and there's a weighted average swimming pools, weighted average FICO, weighted average coupon. All of those go in there. So, but each individual loan. At any point in time, the market is saying, we will pay this much for a pool, not a swimming pool, Jeb, a pool of mortgage-backed securities. But within that, every one of those loans is priced differently. And the pricing change that we had, and I always kind of want to say, every rate is available to everyone on any given day. So Jeb and I are not identical in terms of credit score, properties that we would buy, borrow, how much we would put down, all that stuff. So all of those have adjustments. Nearly all of those adjustments are more. So most people don't like paying those points out of pocket for the last 15, 20 years. People are used to zero point loans. So you go, okay, what is my par rate? Well, par is 6.75. Your par with your FICO score might be 7.125. Your FICO, your property type, all that fun stuff. Well, right now we have more adjustments, more loan level price adjustments to account for more and higher for the vast majority of borrowers. Um, paradoxically, the people who have uh, the same or lower are those with lower credit scores and lower down payments. Nearly everyone else is paying a little bit more. Lenders are wanting you to go higher in rate to cover that than what they normally do. So I priced one out earlier and I used to have set up in my system before the show, I would run a 740 FICO because as we always used to talk about, that's the highest FICO score for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for their tiers. Now it's not. Now there's tiers to 760 to 780 and up to 800. So I ran that 740, 20% down. Uh, and it came back saying, if you wanted zero points, it's somewhere maybe just shy of seven and an eighth. Well, I said, I wonder what it looks like if I plug in 800. Plug in 800, now it comes back at 6.875. That's kind of crazy. 740 used to be your absolute best tier. And now you better have that 800 score if you want the absolute best pricing in there. So there's an element of that and kind of put that into context. We usually talk about the spread between FHA VA loans and conventional loans is about a half percent. So if we're saying zero points is somewhere plus or minus 7% on a conventional loan right now, we'd say six and a half. Well, I priced one out with a 680 credit score. FHA is six and a quarter or even maybe a little bit lower than that, six and an eighth. So we're pushing a full percent on the spread there because of these new loan level price adjustments. And, you know, I, we all always talk about my love of the government here. Well, we've got government bureaucrats at the FHFA that are saying, hey, we're going to change this and tweak this. So instead of 
instead of the pricing reflecting the risk to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, it's reflecting the policies that they want to enact. And it's making it harder and it's making it more attractive for FHA financing for most uh, borrowers. No, good stuff. Uh, so tonight, like we always do, we're going to go through some charts, uh, update you on inventory, update you on just different things in the economy. And then we'll start diving into some questions like we always do, help you guys, you know, mortgage, real estate related questions. So make sure you're putting those in the comments there. Um, many of you guys know about the podcast this last week. We actually took, uh, you know, not a recommendation, but a, a question that that started I think last week or the was it last week they asked the question? Last week. Um, she asked the question. Kim uh, Smith asked the question of if we had an episode regarding DTI, where we explained DTI. Well, a quick look to realize we, we didn't have an episode on DTI um, in any detail. We talked about it in episodes, but never in its own episode. So we went out on Friday and we filmed that episode specifically for Kim and everybody that wanted to know about DTI. That posted last Tuesday. Why is DTI important? Really boring, right? I said, sucks why, why would anybody want to know about dti well because ultimately it leads you to know how much home you can afford what goes into affordability how you can influence affordability a little bit what lenders look for so if you're buying a house you're into podcast go check out the educated home buyer it's out there great episodes diving into specific topics like dti like you know this today's episode that we recorded it'll post next tuesday has a lot to do with what's happening in the market at the moment. I think a lot of you can find value in that. So that'll post next Tuesday, but go check it out and listen to it. And then every Friday, we take this episode, transcribe it, or take the audio from it, rather. I always say transcribe, take the audio, and it posts as an episode as well. So if you miss any part of the show, you can go and check it out on Friday. So the Jeb, title- hold, yep. hold on. Don't let no. it go without saying that we no, also- we record, recorded an episode, a long, detailed episode on the loan estimate, understanding everything in it. And both of us thought that's going to be like watching paint dry. No one is going to care. And it's actually one of the most popular podcast episodes, video episodes there on, on YouTube. So if you're going through the process, you want to understand your loan estimate. Also a good one that we kind of put it out there knowing that was content that you guys needed and, and should be hearing, but no idea if anyone wanted it, but it's actually doing very well. So uh, if you have some questions on what in the heck a loan estimate is, what you should be looking for, we did about 35 minutes going into detail on that. Yeah, and it's not the same stuff we're doing here, guys. So just understand that. Um, I think that's important to know. You're not watching, you know, an episode of us talk about this and then listening to the exact same thing on on Tuesday on the podcast. It's entirely different. Um, now, if you're watching this tonight and then you're listening on Friday, you're listening to the exact same thing. Uh, but hopefully you're listening to both. Uh, but either way, we appreciate the support. So the title of tonight's episode, if you will, is the housing market is on fire again. Now, if you're in a market that has a ton of inventory, nobody's buying homes, you might be thinking, Jeb, what the hell are you talking about? The market's on fire. Well, I'm talking the market's on fire because in my market here in Southern California, very, very important to note when I say this, real estate is local, guys. What's happening in my market might not be happening in yours, but Southern California, we have no inventory. The last couple of homes I've written offers on, the last couple of homes, actually way more than a couple, that we've, I've called on, have multiple offers above the asking price, just stupid things again, just dumb things again. So if you're wondering why the episode is titled that, that's why. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about that right now. So Josh, this first uh, slide, we've been updating it every week. Inventory nationwide slid once again. 
now down another two and a half percent. We're sitting at 418,000 homes nationwide. That is the lowest level that we've seen since, I don't know, um, some time ago, since probably October of last year or so. Uh, so home inventory is going the wrong direction. Orange County, we're sitting at 2182. That's actually less homes than we had last week. Huntington Beach at 158, a little bit higher than where we were last week. This chart, new listings. This is important because these are new listings coming to the market, right? Versus supply that's sitting on the market. We are at the lowest level we've ever been. Um, well, not ever. I can't say ever, but it since what's that 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 last line? I can't see it there. 2014. I don't know why they chose the years that they did here, 2014, 2015, 2016, 2023, but 2023 was lower than, you know, 17, 18, and 19. I did read that, but it's the lowest level that's been recorded since I forget when. Um, and that's why inventory is is lacking there. Josh, were you going to say something a minute ago? Did I cut you off? No, not at all. But what I wanted to say is comment, why does this matter? Why do you care if you're a buyer, if you're a homeowner? Prices are always going to be about the balance between supply and demand. And we're looking at supply here. These are the best measures. You're just trying to supply. sell homes. You're lying. Ah, I'm cheating. We're showing. So until you see, like, look at this. We're seeing, if Jeb had the chart here of sales volume, sales volume is about 50% of what it was 12 yep. months ago, 14 months ago. So volume is way down. So what does that tell us? So demand is way down. Well, if demand for something goes down, then the price has to go down, right? No, because supply is going down also. Other than the entry level, first-time buyers entering the market, you when someone sells, that's supply, right? So someone was a first-time buyer. They want to move up to their next home, their bigger home. They bought a two-bedroom condo. They now have a family. They want a three-bedroom house. Well, as soon as they sell that, they're a buyer also. So someone selling other than an investor offloading a property, someone deciding they're going to sell and rent, or someone losing a home through a forced sale, that is what is going to be required to see any greater supply relative to demand. So both of them are down. Uh, you know what, Jeb, I would love to go back. We probably should, should do some numbers and see what percentage of demand have we lost? What percentage of supply have we lost? And is the balance exactly the same? It's probably, we've probably lost more demand than supply, but fairly close. And what are we seeing yeah. because of that? We're seeing stagnant prices in most areas, or in desirable areas, desirable homes are, are going in the situation you're talking about with multiple offers and above list. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm going to take these charts off for a minute. We're going to come back to them in just a minute. But there's two comments that came up that I think are relevant to this that I want to, to put up here on the screen. The first one is Jack KK saying this is temp this is temporary, basically. Like the, the low inventory is temporary. And and. I would agree with that to some extent, right? This is, we should start to see some more inventory come to the market. That the low inventory isn't likely to stay this low forever. Um, but I start to, to when, when, you, when I say that and when I read your comment, part of me wants to believe it, that it's temporary and that it's going to correct. The other part of me says, we've seen what happens when interest rates go lower right? It creates demand in the market. Um, people want to buy homes. We saw that just a month ago when interest rates dropped, demand picked up. And that's a lot of what we saw in pending home sales data going up 8% and so on and so forth. And what we saw when interest rates got towards seven-ish percent last October is the market stalled, right? Not a lot of buying, not a lot of, you know, anything. Inventory actually stopped coming to the market too, because sellers 
right? Which we're going to talk about here in just a moment because we're going to look at interest rates in, in detail, like how many people have what rate. Sellers aren't willing to put their homes on the market and buy a more expensive piece of property for a higher rate. It costs them way more money. Therefore, the inventory stays off the market. So we've talked about this week in and week out about the gridlock, the the uh, what's the word that you were using? Stalemate. Josh? The stalemate in, in property. Yes, I do believe it's temporary, but I also believe there is a bigger problem here that no one saw coming. Um, we've talked about it. We've been talking about it for a year, but I don't think we saw it to the extent that we're in now where it's like, something's got to give one direction or another for, for that to change. Um, and then Jack goes on to say, the Fed is on the mission to crash the markets. We've talked about this. If the Fed wanted to crash the market, the Fed could do it today. They, they could have done it two, three months ago. Very easily, in fact, um, with with you know the mortgage-backed security buying and and their balance sheet and all of that, they could crash the market. But they're not doing that. Their their goal is not to crash the market. Their goal is to bring balance to the market, uh, bring inflation down, keep jobs you know from ultimately crashing, if you will. Um, so you know, yes, it's easy to say the Fed is there to crash the market, but they're not. Well, we talked about it, Jeb, at the at the leadoff here. What they are committed to, they will risk grinding the economy to a halt. They would rather have a, a, a severe recession than not get inflation under control. And right now, so much has changed since you know 30, 40 years ago of what caused inflation. Like economists are smart people, but they deal in theory. And a lot of the theory is built off of 40 years ago. And I'm not saying, hey, I'm not an economist. I'm in the market today. And I know um, a lot of smart people are debating what's changed, what's different. I, I always, you want to be careful when someone says, well, this time it's different. But everything is very different than 40 years ago. And the Fed seems to still be fighting that war and very comfortable with a strong recession to, just to make sure they, they kill inflation. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. No, no, absolutely. Uh, this, this chart is specifically for Orange County, where I'm located at the time. This shows 2,200 listings. A minute ago, I said 2,100 something because this chart's a couple of days old. So it was, it actually came out on a Monday. Uh, and that's, you know, before properties go into escrow after that weekend or what have you. But nevertheless, just look at it compared to years prior. I mean, that's, you know, yes, inventory is quite a bit from where it was last year, but compared to the previous 10 years, down quite a bit. And that report came from Reports on Housing, which is a local um, newsletter that I subscribe to here it, in Orange County. You look at that, Jeb, take, those are as, as much as we can consider normal um, because 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, it was a heavy foreclosure market. So I would mm -hmm. discount that that low bar on, the thir on 2013. But those were fairly normal years, 14, 15, 16, 17, mm -hmm. 18, 19. And we're sitting there average, if we average it out, what is it, 5,000, 4,900, something like that, or mm -hmm. half of what our most recent take on a normal market is. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, I mean, that's why you're seeing the craziness that you are. Um, this is pending contracts. Uh, just shows you that, you know, obviously pending homes are, are the more people going under contract at the moment. A lot of it has to do with rates. This is weekly. Uh, 69,000 new pending contracts. It's 1.3% more than this time last year. Uh, percent of properties with price reductions. We, last week, we talked about it leveling off a little bit. It was at 31 point something percent. We're still at 31%. So less sellers having 
to reduce uh, prices from, you know, just a couple of months ago. But, you know, you could, if rates start to go back up, um, inventory starts to come to the market, you could see that tick up. But the, the key part of that is inventory coming to the market, which we're not seeing a lot of at the moment. U.S. Uh, list prices. So list price versus um, a median home price. So you can see the list price is now starting to trickle up. This time last year, I think we were at $399. This year, we're at $389. So a little less on the listing price, uh, moving closer to that median home price. Here's the key. The key to a lot of problems, quite frankly. Um, this is the number of people that have a rate below 4%. Now, keep in mind, there's about 45% of homeowners out there in America that own their home free and clear. And that could be seen as a really good thing, could be seen as a really bad thing, because interest rates may or may not affect their decision making in that process for whatever reason, right? But nevertheless, of the 55% of people that have mortgages, about what we say, Josh, 70% have a rate lower than 4%. Yep. And 90% have a rate lower than 5%. Yep. Think about that for a minute, guys. With interest rates currently sitting close to seven, prices still higher than they were a year ago. That's more expensive property for people to buy, more expensive payment, absolutely, for people to buy. And then all of those people that could be potential sellers for one reason or another are sitting on a super low payment. That is what's keeping inventory low. Jeb, and I, yep. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw you. I didn't see the chart this way. You know, I saw the data uh, in in text form. Mm -hmm. So it's awesome that you found the chart and threw it in here because I'm gonna throw something wild out here. We are talking about the number of mortgages. Ninety percent of loans by count are under. 5%. I will guarantee you if we run these numbers and we say by dollar volume, because you're looking at it going, who has a rate at 5.99 and didn't refinance? Who has a rate 7% and above and didn't refinance? There is a very small cohort of those people who are unable to qualify or were unable to qualify when rates were two and a half, three and a half percent. But we've talked about this on the show. What does it take to make sense to refi? If you have a 7% rate and rates are 3%, but you owe $35,000 on your mortgage, $40,000 on your mortgage, the costs of that loan are going to be like 10% of the balance. Like I'm not going to go up 10% to save a minuscule amount, even though it's a huge amount in terms of the interest rate. So I would love uh, to see, I may, I may email Jeb Black Knight and see if they have the data and can show us a chart by dollar volume versus count of mortgages. Because I would bet you that it's probably more than 95% of mortgages by dollar volume are below 5%. Yeah, it'll be it'd be interesting chart nonetheless. Actually, I thought I moved this chart. Uh, we're here. We're going to go over it real quick. Just basically showing that job postings are are continuing to decline. So we're getting um, at least on Indeed, uh, you know, job numbers again reported higher today, which means that likely on Friday you're likely to see job numbers report strong. Um, last month they were way off based on the way the calculations were done. So hopefully we don't get that surprise this month. Uh, and as long as we don't get that major surprise, then it shouldn't really have a huge impact on the market unless it goes the other direction, which could impact things in a positive way. So most U.S. mortgages are pandemic mortgages. Josh, what does that mean? 
really it's just telling you that the largest volume of loans. So if we look what uh, we've got 17% and 24%, 40% of loans were originated in 2020 or 2021, another 12% in 2022. So that three year window where we had ultra low interest rate, more than 50% of the loans were originated in that time frame. It doesn't mean 50% of people bought their homes, but those that bought way earlier were able to take advantage and roll down to those lower interest rates. So a piece of that, that maybe entering into this equation where the Fed is saying, hey, we're slamming on the brakes and the economy is not slowing down. Why is that? There is a level of stimulus. There was a lot of studies done like 25, 2005, 2006, 2007 on mortgage equity withdrawals. People were taking cash out of their homes and they had a bunch of money. So it wasn't the government giving you a check. It was lenders making it really easy for you to get a bunch of money and go spend and stimulate the economy. This is stimulative in that people are saving 100, 200, 300, $500 a month in perpetuity going forward or a combination of getting some cash that they can spend, building up their cash position uh, and lowering their monthly payments. So this tells you why are so many loans at those ultra low rates and why possibly do we have another tailwind behind the economy where with the Fed putting on the brakes, we talk about you know the stimulus, what was the last check early 2022? With the last stimulus checks, Jeb, yeah. is that correct? So mainly in- Unless you live in California and you got the, uh, <laughs> what the hell was that thing called? The, I don't know. There was some some something that went out. And so, uh, yeah. Most anyway. of that stimulus is gone. This stuff continues on. You know, uh, you, you we, people talk about um, hedonic adjustments, a hedonic treadmill. You get used to whatever the new normal is. So even if your payment goes down 300 bucks, maybe you went out and bought a new car with a $500 payment because you had that wiggle room. So it will adjust out over time as people sort of adjust their spending to that new normal. But it is another thing that's stimulative towards the economy and potentially keeping uh, keeping us higher longer than we otherwise would have been. And just to recap kind of, on yeah, that chart. Yeah, we, we kind of talked about that a minute ago. Just put it, think about that for a minute. Just, just we're going to be silent. Moment of silence. Uh, well, Jeb, let's, here, let's throw another piece <laughs> of context You broke the here. moment of silence, bro. I, 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 would, I was not good at being put in the corner and being put on timeout when I was a kid. So when we talk and what is inflation? Is inflation 4.5%, 5.5%? If you have a mortgage under 4%, inflation's at 5.5%, that's a negative real return, a negative real cost of the money. They're not paying you to have it, but in real terms, they are. No. <laughs> yeah, it's smart. And guess what? Not, nothing wrong with renting, but understand rents continue to increase year over year. By buying a house, you're fixing that cost. So and and Jeb, we'll go into it. We'll do a video or we'll talk about it on the show at some point further in the future. I am more bullish on rents going up uh, in the future at a rate similar to what they have in the past versus home prices. So you may not see the appreciation going forward in home prices that we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years, but you will absolutely see that in, in rental prices. So uh, there's a million reasons to become a homeowner when it's the right point in your life. Um, and that is, is one of the biggest ones is being able to fix your housing cost or at least 85% of your housing cost. There you go. Uh, corporate profits, Josh, are we seeing? So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, look at the highlighted parts are the most important part here, Jeb. If we look from 1947 through say 2000, 
before our government got crazy about stepping in and intervening with massive stimulus. That's kind of what a normal chart looks like, right? That red curve, um, you know, it had trended up a little bit, but then you see these big spikes where we go way above trend. Every time we have a crisis, the government steps in and, and stimulates. So again, what are we talking about inflation? The, the quote here from these guys says, notably, this has nothing to do with giant corporations taking advantage of consumers. It's the economic consequence of too much money chasing too few goods. It goes back to supply and demand. We have more demand than we have supply of many, many things. And this is normalizing. It will come back down to trend. It did it after each one of these events. It will come back down to trend, but we're going to be well above where we should have been. And that's putting money into the pockets of corporations. We talk here every week, Jeb. Um, I want everyone to be able to buy a home at an affordable, reasonable number. And we're beyond that right now. And yet we're looking here and saying the government who is going to help everyone out by not letting the housing crash be too bad, by not letting COVID get too bad, has made corporate profits go through the roof and asset prices go so high that those that are on the outside looking in are having a really, really hard time uh, getting through that. And hopefully we now have three cycles of this and plenty of academic research that the government should be able to look back and go, huh. Maybe we don't step in and just parachute money everywhere next time there's a problem. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. Uh, this is talking about foreclosures, delinquencies, Josh. Um, we, we, we talked, about? Jeb, earlier in the show about one way, whether we know that people don't want to sell. We have a limited amount of supply because people are not voluntarily listing their homes for sale. We get a ton of questions here on the show. When are the foreclosures coming? If there's a recession, how, how, how are we going to see these foreclosures? Well, we're we're still very early in the change to the economy with higher rates, high prices and high inflation. Mm -hmm. So you can't read too much into it, but you would expect these numbers to be worsening. Instead, they're improving. National delinquency rate, 3.38%, down 10 basis points in January and now 15% year over year. 15% better than it was last year when almost everything has gotten worse. January's 2.9% decline in delinquencies, broad-based, led by a 4.8% drop in early-stage delinquencies. So they break it out by 30, 60, and 90. The 60 and 90-day delinquencies, people who are really in trouble, you know, they didn't miss one payment. They've now missed two or three. They were also decreased. Not a lot, but a little bit. Serious delinquencies. So when you get past 90 days, you've missed three payments. That's someone that's in trouble. And I don't know what the numbers are in the current market, but they're likely either to voluntarily sell or lose that house in foreclosure. They also continue to improve, falling by 4,000. 44 states saw that those numbers improving. Florida added 1,700 because of Hurricane Ian. A lot of people who have their homes destroyed and they're having problems with their insurance company, they're saying like, hey, I'm not making payments. Eventually my insurance company will, will make me whole. So that's what we're looking there. And this is just the big chart showing you that's what that looks like. Go back to 2002. We have never had delinquencies this low. We talk about every week, there is not a recipe for people to lose their homes. On the, the episode, Jeb, that we recorded today, if you're cool with it, we'll use you as an example again. If Jeb was to lose his house. Bro, why me? I'm just using you as an example because I know your numbers. If Jeb were to lose yeah. his house, to go rent his house would cost him about 5200 bucks. His mortgage is about $3,000 all in. So $2,200 more to rent something equivalent. And if you said, okay, my payment's 3,000, I'll just go rent something for 3,000. It's likely a two bedroom apartment. He's got three kids, three young, growing, rambunctious boys. That doesn't work. So long way of saying people will beg, borrow, steal, fight, bite, claw, 
to not lose their home. It doesn't mean no one will. It doesn't mean these numbers will never tick back up, but it means it is highly unlikely because no one wants to lose their home because the alternative is so bad. You contrast that to 2008, the alternative was pretty good. I've used the example here on the show. The very first home that I bought to flip in 2008, that guy owed $695,000 on a house that I bought for $265,000. His payment was $5,300. The house directly across the street that was twice as nice, he could rent for $2,000. That person goes, huh, this is dumb to fight to keep this house that's $400,000 upside down when I can rent it for $3,000 less per month. We have the exact opposite right now, and people will do everything possible to not lose their homes. No, good stuff. So we're about to dive into some questions now. Um, if you found any value in that at all, do me a favor, hit the thumbs up. Uh, but here we go. Um, start with a couple of comments and questions kind of related because we just touched on this. So I'm just going to recap it because they're very easy to do. Spiro Guest says there was two homes down from us that sold for $100,000 over the uh, listing price two days ago. Not surprised by that. Um, kind of what we talked about a moment ago and then asked the question, are homes in SoCal still selling over that listing price? Some are. Uh, the ones that I've been trying to write offers on recently and calling on all have been. Um, I'm still trying to find the ones that are selling for less than the asking price. Uh, you know, in, in the episode that we recorded today, where we give an up, a market update, give some more examples of things that are happening here locally. And I'm not just going to hash them out again, but give you some really good examples of why sellers are still able to get prices higher than the asking price at the moment. Just giving you an idea of what inventory is like in, in the market that we're in, uh, you know, just to provide you a little, a little backstory to, to some of that stuff. So let's take on some other questions. So Rakesh started the, you know, right here at the top of the show, Josh, and asked, will we see a decline in rates after the job reports on Friday? Now, your crystal ball looks probably a lot like mine. Uh, we don't really, we don't know. Uh, but with that said, even if job reports were to improve, uh, so so let's say job job jobs were less than expected because bad news is actually good news for interest rates, believe it or not, right? So if you want interest rates to improve, you need bad news in the economy. Crazy, I know, but that's the way that works. So if we were to see bad job numbers on Friday, Josh, would that ultimately lead to lower interest rates? Yes. Okay. And, and that's why we've had this really bad sell-off in the last month. We had a really hot jobs report last month. We've talked about uh, adjustments that the, the government now makes annually, and they were uh, instituted. So it inflated those numbers above and beyond what they would have been. It would have been a good report, but it was a really hot report because of that. So how does that play out now the second month of those adjustments the market should be a little bit better at being able to account for that and expect it um, we saw a, a relatively hot adp jobs number today last month people were expecting a weak uh, uh national bureau of labor statistics job report because we saw adp two days before come in at a hundred thousand jobs well, we ended up having a, a really blockbuster report. Well, today they were expecting 205,000. We got 240,000. That's a 20% beat. The market pretty much shook it off. Um, we sold off a little bit. Lenders priced way worse than what mortgage-backed securities actually did. I think everyone is deathly afraid of what that Friday number is going to be. It's sort of like um, the, the puppy who gets kicked every time his owner comes home. He kind of hides in the corner and stays away from his mean owner. That's what we're, we're used to right now. The market is expecting to get kicked. That was a really bad like a, analogy there. I'm just saying. You couldn't think of anything better than a puppy. Don't, don't you watch YouTube videos from the dodo and see all the poor dogs that have been mistreated? I don't. 
I don't. Um, I do. But I here do. we are. Uh, let's see. Um, ZL came in with a question. Says closing on a house. Lender initially quoted me seven and a half, but decreased it to six and a half after I shot some rates while under contract. Does this rate change greatly affect the lender's bottom line? So does the lender have play in that rate, Josh, to be able to offer a better rate? Uh, how does that work? So I don't know that the market was ever at seven and a half. So why they ever quoted you at seven and a half is a little bit insane. If that was where the market was and the market stayed there and they said, we'll eat it, we'll give you six and a half. That's about a four point difference in a normal market, 4% in the value of that loan. So a $500,000 loan is a $20,000 difference to them. Million dollar loan, $40,000 difference to them. In the current market, it's probably more than that. Um, lenders don't really want anything other than par rates. They don't want you buying rates down. They don't, they're actually okay with you buying them down. They don't want to pay a, a premium for that. So uh, the seven and a half doesn't make any sense to me of why they would have ever quoted that to you other than they wanted to qualify you at a very high rate to make sure you still qualify if and when you go to closing and rates are, are higher. But in, in general, if someone truly, like if I quote you seven and a half and that's legitimately the rate and you shop around and come back and I go, okay, I'll do the six and a half. There's, there's nowhere near that much profit in a, a loan. Um, you know, from beginning to end with every person in that value chain, there's probably not four points of, of money in the deal. There you go. Uh, Jessica, one of our regular viewers says, can you explain what seller is buying down rate means a little more? Is it beneficial? What is the trade-off? So when a seller is willing to buy down the rate, so like Josh was just talking, say you go and you get qualified with Josh and Josh says, hey, today your rate is 7%. What you have is an option always to buy that interest rate down a little bit. What Josh has said in the past, about 1% of the value of your loan buys you down about a quarter percent. So let's say you have a $500,000 loan, $5,000 will buy down your rate about a quarter percent on average, not always, not, you know, not uh, certain hundred percent of the time. Uh, but with that said, if the seller is willing to buy down your rate, that means the seller is willing to offer you a credit towards closing costs to help you adjust the rate. Now, depending on how much they're offering, will depend on how much you can buy down the rate. Maybe they're offering you $10,000 towards closing costs. In the example that I gave you, that gives you an opportunity to roughly buy it down half a percent. Now, understand, that's not free money, right? You are paying for it a lot of times in the price of the property. Even if you're buying a home for say 500,000, and let's just say the the price uh, that you make on the pro the property is five hundred thousand, but they're giving you a ten thousand dollar credit. You're still fine. I mean, you're still paying roughly the same price of that property because they're just buying down that rate for you. So in most cases, what I tell people is, had you rather have a lower price home or had you rather have you know uh, someone buy down your rate? If you think that interest rates are going to go down to a point where you're going to be able to refinance within the next three to five years, um, then I would personally take the money off the price and have a lower sales price versus using the money to buy down the rate, but to each his own. So hopefully that makes sense. Jeb, I'm not, yep. I'm not, I'm not happy with Anya here. She's, she's predicting it's going to be a good jobs report. So we're like, um, what do we like the the vultures of the economic world? We want bad news. We want bad news. We want no jobs created. We don't want a whole bunch of them created. Um, one thing here that I did want to point out, Jeb, I had this in the data, but it was just text. Um, 
it says uh, in the ADP data, there were roughly 10, uh, during COVID, there were 10 million leisure and hospitality jobs lost. We've been adding about 100,000 each month during the recovery. We're now close to having all of those leisure and hospitality jobs back. So once we get to full employment there, there's no more jobs to add back in. So we talk about the possibility of recession. We talk about what happens with the Fed action. Definitely possible that employers could react by not hiring as much, cutting jobs, but even absent that, you know, all of the hotels that, that let their staff go, restaurants, amusement parks, casinos, that fun stuff, they're going to be back fully staffed here sooner rather than later. And that is a big chunk of that monthly hiring. So don't know that that gives us any insight into Friday's jobs report. But if we look two, three, four months down the line, probably is likely to, to impact us. Good, good. Uh, James says, all of this is going over my head higher than a Chinese spy balloon. James, we're very sorry. We're here to provide some context on it to help break it down so that it's eye level so you can understand it. Um, you know, some of this stuff can be very overwhelming and much above uh, our pay grades in at least my pay grade in, in some form or fashion. Um, but you just try to find the people that can break it down for you and help you understand it. Jim, uh, I'm yep. going to throw two examples out there. I will tell you, Louis Gave is a genius. Lacey Hunt is a genius. Yeah, Lacey Hunt is very hard to uh, comprehend. These, these two both think the other is an idiot and, and doesn't know what they're talking about. And they are both geniuses. Yeah, so and you read, talk about you read either of them and you have no idea what you just read. Yeah. Um, so with that said, you know, find somebody that you can understand and that you trust. Uh, Oso has a question. Uh, take on Cal Half, a 20% down assistant new program coming March 27th. So I'm actually going to do a video on this, breaking it down in detail to help you guys understand it. Um, it is coming soon. So there's essentially uh, a grant um, coming that has to be repaid when the house is sold on top of some profits. Josh, I don't know if you want to go into it now or just wait for well, a video to come let's out. let's i literally had a viewer of the show call and ask about it we've been talking about it. he's in, under contract on new construction they only have five percent down he goes hey would this be good for me i get 20 percent down so it's not a grant they're not giving you money it's not a, a lien against the property it is uh it, it's there's a, a deed of trust securing that position against the property but basically they're not giving you 20 percent down they're going to allow you to use their 20%. And then when you go to sell the home, you are going to give back that proportion of the appreciation. So 20% down, 20% of your appreciation when you go to sell is going to go back to them. You're not making payments on that 20%. They're just going to get some of that money on the way back. Now, here are some really important things to remember. Cal HFA has lower debt to income ratios than other loan programs. So you're likely to qualify for less, probably offset in this situation by the fact that you're going from a 3%, 3.5%, 5% down to a 20%. So your payment's probably lower. You probably would qualify for more because there's no payment on that 20% that down. Interest rates also higher on Cal HFA loans. They use the profits from these expensive loans to offset the cost of the program, even though it's mainly funded by uh, subsidized government borrowing since it's a state of California program. So until we know those details, what does the interest rate look like? Um, what do the costs look like? Cal HFA loans are expensive relative to other loans. They're borrower paid. We talk about zero point loans on here. For the most part, you are paying your own points um, there on the Cal HFA. So a lot of details still to be sorted through. There's obvious advantages. Jeb, I think we have five questions in here about this. 
like I don't think we have one quest, two questions about any other topic. There's no, we five do on this. Well, we do. Um, it's also called the the California Dream for All program. Just in case you're wondering, so Josh gave a little context on that. So I know there's some questions. The one question that keeps coming up, I've seen it at least five times, are what are interest rates today? Where are interest rates, Josh? So we talked about that in the early going. FHA, VA are going to be in the low sixes. You know, um, a good credit score, six and a quarter or possibly lower, six and an eighth, maybe 6% if you want to pay some points, 5.99. But a big spread to conventional loans with the new loan level price adjustments. Best borrower, 60, you know, 60% loan to value, 40% down, 800 credit score is probably in the very, very high sixes. Everyone else is going to be in the low sevens. All right. Good stuff. Uh, easy one here. Josh, for VA, how many times can we refinance uh, to lower our rate? Do we have to have equity to refinance? You do not have to have equity. They do not do an appraisal. Basically, what the VA is looking at is saying, if we are putting you in a better position, then we will do the loan regardless of what the value is. We are already guaranteeing your current loan. If we can put you in a better position, we will guarantee the new loan. They came out a few years back. There were call centers that were just abusing the heck out of veterans, tricking them into doing loans that didn't uh, pay off over the long run. So now we have a recoupment period. What that loan costs you has to pay itself off within 36 months. So if it is truly beneficial for you to do that refinance and put you in a better position, you can do it as many times as you want. Good stuff. I mean, shouldn't all loans be like that realistically, Josh, if it's a benefit? It's like something I remember... Uh, doing loans back in the day and having to provide documentation for people that were going to a lower payment. And I'm and, and granted, not arguing it. I, I see the the reason for behind, you know, the all the reasoning and all of that. But if you're lowering somebody's payment, putting them in a better position, shouldn't that be something that the lender should want to do um, in theory? So every loan is going to have a net tangible benefit requirement. Most states, I don't know that it's in the federal regulation. I'm adding some additional states right now. I was going through my Colorado just a couple of days ago, and their state has a requirement of a net tangible benefit. You have to show what that benefit is. Are we paying off some debt? Are we getting some money to do house improvements? Most people refinancing right now are taking a higher rate than what they currently have. Can that be beneficial? Yes, but not just to go from lower rate to higher rate. There has to be something in it. We have a question over here about a divorce situation. Um, if I have to do a refinance to buy out my soon to be ex spouse, is there a benefit to me? Yes, I get to keep my house. So we do always have to show the VA made a very specific measure of that their measures of net tangible benefit prior to the changes um, were not tight enough. And so we had people in call centers figuring out ways to trick veterans into doing things that weren't necessarily in their best interest. Maybe I wasn't clear. I, I'm under the belief that you shouldn't need an appraisal on a property. If my payment is going down and benefiting and making it more, um, a better situation financially for me, I, I find it hard that a lender's like, no, we're not going to do that loan. You're going to be in a better position than you are, you know, currently, even if well, the value's not there. And, and think about it, which, which two loan programs allow that? The ones that have explicit government guarantees, FHA yep. and VA guaranteed by the government, they will allow you to refinance without having an appraisal. Fannie and Freddie are quasi-government uh, sponsored enterprises and therefore don't have an explicit guarantee and they haven't done that. Now, that being said, Jeb, we've talked about this before on the show. About this time last year, people were saying no one buy. If you buy with a conventional loan you and rates do go down next year, you won't be able to take advantage of it. 
That is correct by the letter of the law and the guidelines. But we saw in the last downturn, among other government stimulus programs, Fannie and Freddie stepped in and created the Home Affordable Refinance Program that said you could refinance even if you were upside down. So they did that in extreme circumstances. They just don't have that as a guideline during normal times. All right. Good stuff. Uh, we've got a lot um, a lot of questions tonight. So guys, hang in there with us. We'll try to knock some of these out quickly. Brian's got a couple of questions, but one of them is, in my experience, which lender typically offers the best rate? So, you know, I would say it's worth your time to get a quote from a bank, get a quote from maybe a credit union, if that's who you do business with, whoever you bank with, get a, get a quote, but also get a quote from a broker. A broker has access a lot of times to the banks that you're banking with, the credit union that you're doing business with, but they also have access to other lenders. Most brokers are approved with, I don't know, I, I'd guess to say 5, 10, 20 lenders on average. Um, I remember back in the day, we had a, a hell of a lot of lenders back in the day. And what we do is look at your scenario. We find out who has the best pricing, who has the best terms, who has the quickest turn times. What are you trying to accomplish? And we take our loan there. And most of the time you end up with a better experience. You end up with better fees, better rates. So I say, check with a broker. Um, now Jeff, with that said, yeah, go ahead. What, what I was going to say is you just described exactly what a broker is supposed to do. Um, we have a situation where many brokers are basically captive to one or two lenders and they will proudly tell you, I do 90% of my business with such and such lender. It really makes them the equivalent to a retail lender. Um, I, what I was going to do for some context, Jeb, I didn't mean to cut you off, but looking well, at you that, did. I did that scenario, the 800, 800 credit score. 20% down in this situation. The difference from my best priced lender to my worst priced lender is three points. That's just one page here of, of Loan Sifter. So my job is to go in there and look at those terms. Now, that being said, this is a company who I did was like six months ago, wasn't doing conventional first mortgages. They were doing reverse mortgages. So would I send your loan there? Probably not. We may go down to the second or the third one on the list because that is that combination that you were talking about, service, turn times, technology, and an excellent rate. So if you go to a broker that really does their job, that's what they're doing for you. But some brokers have two or three lender approvals and send all their loans there. So in that situation, you almost need to do what Jeb was talking about. Talk to a bank, talk to a credit union, talk to a direct lender. And at the end of the day, it's not costing you any money. That's what I don't get why people like, I don't want to shop around. Why? Why wouldn't you want to shop around? You, you want to get the best rate. You want to get the best fee. And, and I don't mean shop around with 20 different people, just two or three, just to make sure you're getting a good deal. Make sure you're getting, it does. And again, we've talked about this time and time again, the lowest rate not, might not be the best deal for, for a number of reasons. So just make sure you're talking with a professional, a knowledgeable expert. Um, take the time. 20 minutes, 30, whatever it is to have that conversation, just to make sure you're putting yourself in the best position. Cause it's a big purchase. It's going to be something that you pay every month. Um, so you want to make sure that you're comfortable with it and that you understand it and that somebody on the other side can provide, you know, the details and, and answer your questions. Um, so with that, there's a link scrolling right now across the bottom. If you need to get in touch with somebody, second quote, first quote, whatever that can guide you through that process. Jeb, there's another yep. question here that I think is a great one to transition to from this. So Jana says that she has shopped around for loans. One lender approved me for 420,000 conventional. Another approved me for 480 conventional. The third lender is 435 FHA. I live in Vermont 
not really relevant to this. You should qualify for the same amount everywhere. Um, why do different lenders have different amounts? Um, the, it's simply the quality of their pre-approval. If your income is straightforward, you make a salary, you make an hourly wage and you work exactly 40 hours a week, a trained monkey, chat GPT could go through that and calculate your income and tell you under the guidelines what your maximum did, is. Did you actually know that's what's on the other side? It's not AI. It's a trained monkey. It's a trained monkey. And he's sitting there banging the symbols together and goes, yes, you and get that's 420. What, that's what comes out. Yes. Here, here's an example. I had this exact situation. Lady uh, from the show filled out the form right there uh, and reached out. And we were talking. She goes, uh, I've been pre-approved. They only gave me 235. And I'm like, oh, boy, she's going to tell me she makes like $50,000 or $45,000. I said, well, how much do you make? He's like $74,000. I said, okay, well, do you have a bunch of debt? No, just have my car payment. And we look at it. I mean, it wasn't a ton higher, but it was 35% higher than what she had qualified for. It's like 340, 350 that she could qualify for. And that's what you don't realize. So going back to that last question, how do I get the lowest rate? Well, what if the person that quoted you the lowest rate or actually literally had the lowest rate is the guy that says you qualify for 420? and you actually qualify for 480 and the perfect home for you is 450, but you didn't get to get it because that person, that trained monkey in that call center with that spectacular rate didn't know how to accurately qualify you. We've talked about this on another video. We talked about it on the podcast, Jeb. Sometimes people will get frustrated. Why are you asking for all of this information? Well, I'm asking for all of this information because your income isn't exactly straightforward. And we wanna make sure that I am telling you the absolute maximum that you qualify for. Not that you need to borrow to the absolute maximum, but for you to make an informed decision for you and your family, you do need to know what that absolute maximum is. And someone saying FHA conventional, I, I don't know how someone would qualify for less FHA than conventional. FHA allows higher debt to income ratios and the rates. And now with the reduced mortgage insurance, the combined blended rate between the rate and mortgage insurance is at least a percent lower than a conventional loan. So the person that quoted you the FHA, I would just ask them, are you slow? Do you not really understand how numbers work? And it's probably the same thing with the 420. It could be. Well, also, if we look at 420 and 435, maybe those are the reasonable numbers. And the guy at 480 doesn't know how to calculate income or didn't figure that you have property taxes. Like it sounds crazy, but 80% of the people in our business are morons. So you gotta, you gotta go with your gut and know that the person is answering your questions honestly, accurately. And that if, if it's too easy, if they're not getting enough documentation from you or heaven forbid, they're just asking a couple of questions over the phone and going, Hey, you're cool to 480 then you know that it's not a rock solid pre-approval. You need to do a little bit of work up front to make sure that you don't have headaches and hassles down the long haul. And it's equally important that this part gets right as having the lowest interest rate. Good stuff. Uh, Matt is coming in. Matty's saying 14 hours into the 135 requirement for a real estate license. Uh, told you I was going to be like you one day. Dude, I told you, be careful what you wish for. Uh, but just understand that 135 hours or 154 hours or whatever the, the actual amount comes out to, I'm doing the math right now, 149 hours, um, teaches you zero about selling real estate, just so you know. Absolutely goose egg about selling real estate. So just know, once you get the license, it's a whole different learning process. Now, a couple of questions I wanted to address here, Josh. Um just because I think they're questions that people have and I wanted to, where was one? And I disagree with them to some extent. Uh, let's see. 
Pulse Powered says, won't new inventory come from small investors that have bought up a lot of property lately that are going to lose more equity if they don't sell, if the prices start going down because of high interest rates? So most investors that I'm aware of, when they buy property, they're looking at cash flow. They're less looking at the value of the home going up. They're looking at the monthly cash flow. Regardless of what happens with rates, the cash flow on that property, that's one reason that you see hedge funds buy property. You see big uh, conglomerates buy residential property is because it's a fixed asset and it brings more or less a fixed return every single month, regardless of what happens with rates, regardless of what happens with inflation. And so what all's happening with rates isn't going to impact that investor's bottom line. Um, and that's important to know. And keep in mind, while rents are decelerating, they're still up year over year. And you're likely to see rents continuing to increase over time, which means that investor is still going to get that money. On top of that, when an investor sells real estate or another asset, um, they have to either pay taxes on that gain or they have to reinvest that money. Let me tell you, investors that are considering selling at the moment are likely looking at the real estate market. And the reason I say this is because I know some looking at the real estate market going, if I sell this asset, where am I going to put that money? There is nothing for me to put my money into because there's no inventory on the market. Therefore, they continue to hold that asset, continue to bring in that payment. So will some sell? Sure. Will it create this massive inventory, um, this massive supply of inventory? I don't think so. Uh, Jack, Jack should probably keep making music, um, because, uh, these two are two different things. Almost every other day you say the market is hot and the next day you say not a good time to buy. First off, I, I don't know that I say it's not a good time to buy, not a great time to buy if for, for certain reasons. So I'll, I'll, let's say I say it, but the two things have nothing to do with one another, quite frankly, the market being hot and it not a good time to buy aren't the same thing. The market is hot right now in Southern California. Because there's a lack of inventory, because there's still a lot of buyer demand, and therefore there's people bidding up property, multiple offers, whatever. That is a hot market. That's what I consider a hot market. It's not a great time to buy for you know a number of reasons. If you're not in the right time in your life, if you have a shorter term time horizon, if you don't have money in the bank, if you're not comfortable with the payment, those are never good times to buy. More so now because we've seen appreciation at 30, 40% over a two-year period of time in a lot of real estate markets out there. But with that said, when I say the market is hot, if you live in Dallas, Texas, right, you might see more inventory on the market than we do here in Southern California. There might be a lot more properties to choose from. You might be reading the market is hot and going, what the hell are you talking about, Jeff? There's houses everywhere. That's a different environment. So understand real estate's local, but buying has nothing to do with what's uh, whether the market's up or down. It has to do with it being the right time in your life. So understand that part of it. Jeb, let, let's go back to that part about real estate is not just local, hyper local. So we say the yeah. market is hot. Jeb's telling you his experience with his buyers right now. Um, I host a, a VA live uh, every week. And so I get to talk to realtors and lending professionals from everywhere in the country. Last week, we had a lady on from Maryland and she said literally everything in her market is selling above uh, list price, not massively, but a little bit above list price with two to five offers, not 50 offers, but two to five offers. Talked to an agent yesterday in San Antonio, currently has four homes listed. He said they're all lingering. 
We don't have buyers for any of them. He said, each one kind of has a unique issue. One has a tenant in it that makes it hard to show. One of them's awful. Um, other one's overpriced because, so there, there's reasons for it. But he said, that is our market. It is definitely trending in San Antonio that way. So does it mean, like, I guess what I would say is, Pay particular attention to who's saying it. If you see a headline that's um, any of the popular press, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, they're giving you a national perspective, which means absolutely nothing. The only thing that matters is the market that you want to buy in. If you're in San Antonio, sharpen your knives and figure out how hard you can go in on, on a discount and asking a seller to pay things. If you're in Maryland or looking at nice properties in Orange County that Jeb's showing you, you're probably going to get disappointed if you're expecting that. It is a weird sort of bipolar market right now that kind of all of these things can be true at the same time. Agreed. Uh, let's see. There's a lot of questions, guys. A lot of questions. Um, here's one from Kim. Uh, when I retire and still owe on my mortgage, will I be able to refinance it on my retirement income? So Josh, can you use retirement income to refinance and what are the qualifications? Absolutely. So all income has to be have a reasonable expectation of continuance for more than three years, for three years or more going forward. So social security, a pension, um, a 401k, you go, well, how do we do that with my 401k? If you're of retirement age, Basically, this is going to sound crazy, but they take the balance and they divide it by 36 months. And if your monthly distribution that you are taking and can demonstrate to them is less than that, they'll allow you to use that for income, even though in 37 months, you could completely run out of money. That's the way we do the calculation. So hard to answer and say, will you be able to refinance? I don't know. How well are you going to save over the next 15, 20 years? How much are you going to owe on the home? What the interest rates look like at that time? But can we use retirement income? A thousand percent. Pamela asks, what is the true value of a home? Because I am confused at this point. Um, so actually it doesn't say that. It says at this point, I am confused. So I'm clearly not um, a very good reader there. But uh, what is the value of a home? A value of a home is what somebody's willing to pay for. I mean, that's simply what it comes down to. Regardless of what you think it's worth, it's, it's what somebody... Two parties are are able to agree on a price. That's what the house is worth. Now, with that said, how do people come up with that price? In our market, it's a little easier than, say, if you're in rural North Carolina, where I'm from. And the reason I say that is around here, there's a, a lot of comparable properties that often sell, right? And, and you, you always have properties uh, selling, uh, maybe hotter markets than others, but there's always comps to use. And uh, it's pretty easy to find similar homes of similar size and lot size and upgrades and all of that to give a value. Whereas you go to Eastern North Carolina, rural country where I'm from, it's a little bit difficult. Uh, I would think it would be difficult uh, just in finding similar properties, similar you know, uh, lot sizes, all of that stuff to be able to figure out the value of a home. So it a lot of it depends on on area um, when when being able to determine that price but ultimately it comes down to what is somebody willing to pay and what are you willing to accept that and that's that's the honest answer in, in a, a property that is openly marketed it's not hey i tell a couple people i'm selling it openly marketed generally in the multiple listing service mm -hmm. where all potential buyers have a reasonable expectation of being aware of it and the seller is fully informed of what the market looks like those two parties agreeing are going to tell you what the market value of the home is and here's the thing, and not everyone's going to agree that the property's worth that, right? I mean, during the pandemic, you had what we thought was the value of a home. There were 
sometimes 30, 50 offers on a property with people thinking that it was worth more than that or willing to pay more than that. And then at the same time, you had people making offers that were not as aggressive thinking, there's no way I would pay that for that house. I mean, in fact, I see property sell all the time thinking, there's no way I'd pay that for that house. But there's a willing buyer on the other side willing to do it. And therefore, you have a, a sell that that records and um, at least one happy party out of the situation at the end of the day. So. Uh, hopefully that is helpful for you. Jeb, I want to I want to post two comments here as proof yep. of what we just talked about, real estate all being local. Lizard King says, houses are ridiculously overpriced. Rates are too high. Houses in Tennessee sitting 150 days plus on the market. Anya says, I'm in the suburb of Jacksonville. Most nice homes sell fast and over sometimes. Both of those can be true. I don't know either one of those markets. They both could be crazy yep. and dead wrong, but both of those things can be true. I, it is reasonable um, to believe that there are two different markets at the same time in, in the country that are behaving that way. It is a strange market right now. I'm going to post something, Josh, that I know you starred just so I would post it because it counteracts. Did I, did, I, did I trigger you? That, that it's exactly opposite of what I said it would be. Uh, it says, husband and I want to thank you for the loan estimation information. So a couple of weeks ago, Josh wanted to record the loan estimate episode on the podcast. For those of you who don't know, we have a podcast separate from this channel um, that you can listen to. There's also a YouTube channel for it uh, separately from this where the educated home buyer is the name of it. But anyhow, I said, nobody wants to hear that crap. It's 30 minutes, 40 minutes. It's boring. Like who is going to listen to this information? Clearly a lot of people, because a lot of people have commented and reached out and watched it. And the video is doing uh, very well for the length uh, of that video. And so two more people, obviously, or at least one here commenting, saying it was super helpful. So you're right, Josh. And uh, I'm glad you found value in it. Uh, asking about current current rate, how we have a low, TI, low DTI, both make six figures and have great credit. Rate is still high. So Rates are high. Rates are high for everyone. Um, yeah. Go back to Jeb's advice. Talk to a broker, um, a, a good and real broker. So ask them, hey, how many lenders do you individually and your company close loans with on a regular basis? That's a very good question to ask a broker. Um, I just put it in here. 800 credit score, 60% loan to value. So 40% down, that would be that best, 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 best terms. You paying a point, you could get that down as low as six and a quarter. Now that's crazy. Uh, a month ago, the lender would have paid us almost two points for that six and a quarter interest rate. But today that's like the best I have in here in a, an engine of about 60 different lenders, some of which we don't even use because they're like fly-by-night companies I've never heard of. But that's a legitimate company, a uh, real number. Um, so you can get quotes all over the place. What I would say is, would I want you to pay a point to get that six and a quarter from my absolute best price lender? Um, probably not. Rates were you know, closing in on five and a half a month ago. Um, I think we're going to be back there. Cannot tell you when. We've, we keep telling you, hey, I think we're going to get back there. Um, I think it's going to be second half of the year. But um, the, the market, the economy is surprisingly resilient, both in terms of jobs, spending, but there are leading indicators in the pipeline that tell us that that recession is coming. A recession is deflationary, will lead to lower interest rates. So if you really want something lower, 
a temporary buy down allows you to not have that sunk cost. I'm not saying that I would I would propose that or think that you should do it. I would do that more likely than paying for a permanent buy down, which that's a sunk cost. When you pay a point, point and a half to buy your rate down permanently, if rates drop to 5% four months from now, you never get that money back. All right. Uh, Chi says, Josh, what channel do you have your live, uh, your VA weekly show on? Would love to catch it. So you want to drop so, that in the... Can you, yeah. or is it yeah. members only? Well, the the actual group on Facebook is members only, but they stream it to the YouTube channel also. So let me pull it up and I'll, I'll drop that in the comments. All right, there you go. Uh, Brian has a good question, says, does, does, does your lender look at your net worth when you apply for a loan? For example, if I have a house that's paid off, large amount of money in my 401k, does that help me qualify and get a better interest rate? The easy answer is no. Um, it, it's, it's what they can... Uh, call contributing factors in the process. Um, Josh, if you want to elaborate it on a little bit more when you when you uh, finish there, you can. But at the end of the day, they're primarily looking at your credit, your current debt to income ratio, and making sure you have enough funds to do the transaction and have some reserves. Some lenders require a little bit more reserves. But at the end of the day, they don't really care if you own another property. They don't really care um, unless, again, it's producing income that you can document, in which case that will help your DTI. But outside of that, it's not really anything other than a contributing factor. Yeah, you can sometimes use that as a, a compensating factor. Uh, I have you know people ask, what if my loan to value is incredibly low? There are still maximums of, of what you can do. That debt to income issue uh, episode of the podcast, we went to it. There's, there is a hard and fast that no matter what, if you have $50 million in the bank, Fannie Mae is not going to let you go over 50% debt to income ratio. They'll forgive a lot of things, but that's not going to make it any better. People will say, well, I have no debt. Well, okay, they're taking that into account that you can go to a 50% front end and back end debt ratio. So there's not really, those things don't necessarily get taken into account like you would hope or think that they would. Obviously, someone with a, a huge amount of assets would be a better risk if you're going to loan them your money than someone that uses every nickel to buy, but it's just not really used in the process for the most part. Good stuff. Um, let's see. Uh, we, we've offered, I, I, some of these have not been checked off. So give me a minute here, Josh, you want to throw something on? You can. Sure. Um, I think Justin asked this a different way. Um, or someone had a very similar question, thinking of renting their home in Colorado and buying a house here in California. Um, if you rent your home and buy and live in another home in a different state, any tax breaks. So it doesn't matter one state, another state, yeah. you'll have, you'll be taxed differently, but in terms of your profitability, um, the schedule E is a federal tax form. You're still going to be able to depreciate that asset. You're still going to be able to write off any of your upkeep, maintenance, taxes, insurance, interest, all that fun stuff. So it doesn't matter where you do it, but there are tax benefits to renting where a home that just breaks even as a rental may make sense on paper for you, depending on your, your tax situation. Well, and I think that's a good to tra transition into this one. Uh, when, when applying, for a loan to get an investment property, does the estimated rent that the property will get figure into my debt to income ratio, Josh? Absolutely. We use 75% of the market rents and it's going to be used in the, the calculation of what we do with the debt to income. So just to say, for example, that the mortgage payment is $2,000, the property will rent for $2,000. We're going to give you 75% of that to allow for vacancy, maintenance, upkeep. So that's $1,500. So now on paper, that house loses $500 a month. 
that is treated just like a $500 car payment, $500 student loan, uh, and is counted in your debt to income ratio. If it went the other way and the 75% comes out to 2,500 and the payment is 2,000, that additional $500 gets added to your income. So it's not like a primary residence where you're qualifying for that full PITI in your debt to income ratio. It's either creating a negative that's treated like a debt or creating a positive that's added to your income before the ratios are ran. All right. Uh, Chris, at, or Chris, not Chris. Uh, what's your take on using the builder's mortgage company versus an outside company? I think there are times when you should use the mortgage company uh, on the inside. But at the end of the day, Josh would say the numbers never lie. So get the quote from the mortgage company inside. What are they offering? Right. A lot of times they are... Um, you know, you're able to get incentives through the builder. There's certain things that, you know, the, the builder is pushing their lender one, because a lot of times they have interest in that lender, right? Uh, secondly, they want to know that that deal gets done. They want to have hands-on if something goes wrong, they want to know exactly what's happening. So they're pushing that lender with that. A lot of times they'll offer incentives and different things. Sometimes you can be paying for those with a higher rate through the builder. So just make sure, get that quote from the builder, and then go out, get that link that's scrolling the bottom there, go contact a broker in your market, get side-by-side -side comparisons and figure out which is the best scenario for you. It may be that the builder is the best scenario. It may be that the builder is not the best scenario, but without having a comparison, you have nothing to base it on. Uh, so that's what I would do. I agree hundred percent. And what I would say is prior to rates increasing, I would say we will be the builder's lender seven days a week and twice on Sundays. And I would say almost the exact opposite since rates have shot up. It is rare that we can beat a builder's lender in the current market because there's a number of reasons. One of those things is they know that we're going to have 100 homes completed in July. And you guys are all laughing over here saying, ha, mine was supposed to be done in February and then in March and now May. And it's probably going to be July. But when they know they're going to deliver a volume of loans in a certain range in a certain time, they can buy a forward commitment. They can get better pricing on that. The builder has an incentive to make sure they're watching and managing and controlling this through the process because they have millions, hundreds of millions in many situations of inventory there that they need to get off their books because they're paying interest on it one way or the other. So they are highly incentivized to make those deals happen. Whereas in a normal market, they would like control of the situation, but they make a business decision at a certain point that, hey, if someone else wants to do that loan cheaper, we're going to step out of the way. Right now, they are strongly incentivized to keep the control to make sure the, the trains uh, run on time. Good stuff. We got a, a lot of really, really good questions tonight, guys, and we're doing our best to get through them all. So bear with us. Uh, if you're watching at the moment and you find any value in our show at all, do us a favor, hit the thumbs up. Uh, feel free to subscribe to the channel. We do this every Wednesday, answering your questions live, updates on the economy, really trying to guide you through that process. If you weren't here earlier, we take this episode every Friday and post it on the podcast so you can listen to the thing, the full you know two hours in its entirety uh, while you're working out, getting motivated. You can listen to Josh and I. It's great. Um, if you're looking to go to sleep at night, it also works for that. Uh, and then on Tuesday, we do a little bit different episode, a deep dive into a real estate topic. So if you're listening to podcasts, you listen to real estate, you're interested in real estate, you're buying a home, check it out um, and hit that thumbs up. It helps. Uh, so here is a good question, Josh, from Nadine. Kind of goes back to what we were talking about a moment ago about rents. And it says, do you count property management fees in the rental property debt? So you mentioned that the lender will use 75% of the rental income. Where's that other 25% going? 
Awesome question that we're clarifying here. Lenders have found that in general, 25% should cover all of your expenses, including your management, but they actually want to use the real numbers. So if you come to me to buy a new home and you have three rentals, we look at your Schedule E for the last one to two years, depending on the loan program, and we have to do the full cash flow analysis on that. So if your expenses run at 39%, you don't get to use 25%. If your expenses run at 9%, you get to use that figure versus the 25%. Um, the exception there, let's say we'll have this happen. Uh, tenant moves out and destroys the house and you're going to do $40,000 worth of work. If we can show that you spent $40,000 of one-time expenses, we don't have to count that in your normal cash flow, but something like your management expenses are absolutely going to be counted in your debt to income ratio. So when can we use the estimated rent and 75%, it's when that property doesn't show up for a full year on a tax return. So if you bought in July and we've got three or four months on the tax return and you're looking to borrow the following year, um, if you bought in January and we're in July and it obviously wouldn't show on a tax return, that's when we have that. Or if you're buying a property now, buying an investment property now, they're not going to count the property management fees. They're just going to use 25% of whatever that rental income is to qualify you. Jeb, so. Nadine had another really good point. Yeah, she liked she liked the loan estimates. Video Screw also. you, bro. Get out of here with that. <laughs> the worst episode we ever did. Josh talked for thirty minutes, and I just the, stared at the camera. The best the best part, Jeb, is I'm like, no, I can make this interesting. And as we're recording it, I'm like, son of a bitch, this is not interesting at all. It is is the most mundane information you will take in. It's very good information, but it is very just like you know, it's like sitting in a classroom. Uh, but hey. If, if you want to understand it and and comprehend it, it's very good because we actually give you a downloadable to download and go over while we're talking about it. Imagine that. Uh, okay, uh, here's another good question. Genova says, does having a down payment upfront help the pre-approval? Also, when is the actual down payment and closing cost due? So uh, Josh, when you're, when you're getting a pre-approval, do I need to have the money in my account right then? Or can I tell you, hey, Josh, I'm going to have 20% down to make this pre-approval happen. Um, and then when is that money actually due to the lender? Uh, I'm going to answer those questions. And then I want you to answer it from your perspective. If you're representing Genova and he wants to write an offer. So mm -hmm. you come to me and we've got, you know, $500,000 house, 20% down is going to be a hundred thousand dollars. You're like, I got $72,000. My aunt is going to give me $20,000 and I can scrape up $8,000 between my sofa cushions between now and then. We're going to go through it and say, is that an acceptable source of funds? Are you confident you can get it? I have a client right now, FHA purchase here in Southern California. He needs $24,000 to close. And I think we have a $5,000 gift and $16,000 documented. I've seen his cash flow. I know what his rent is. He's going to come screeching in on two wheels at the very end with the $24,000 that we need to close. So we can do it hypothetically. We can submit that loan to underwriting tomorrow or the next day. I will have an underwriting approval on that. There's going to be a condition that says, hey, you only have $21,000. Where's the other $3,000 at? And we're not going to get clear for docs until we show the underwriter that we have sourced and seasoned funds for all $24,000 in that situation. So can I pre-approve you? Yes. Can I give Jeb, your agent, a pre-approval package? Yes. 
where we start running into problems. And, and that money just has to come in. I like to say, hey, at the very end, when you make your final deposit mm -hmm. to escrow, but in reality, it's got to be a week, maybe 10 days before that, because we have to have the underwriter clear that you have documented the source and season funds before we can get your loan documents out for the most part. If it's a gift and it's coming in at the 11th hour, they will make the funding subject to the condition of, of showing that the gift actually arrived at escrow. Um, in terms so, of giving you a pre-approval letter, we can absolutely do that. And that money comes in at the end. But Jeb, from your end, yep. how, do, how does that work? What does the seller want to see? Yeah, well, I'm going to give you a really good, I'm going to give you a really good story here that just happened. Um, and it's something I screwed up on, um, which makes it even better for those listing out there. Um, is, that is that twice you've been wrong tonight? Oh, dude, I've been wrong so many times, uh, so many. Uh, but to go back, so if I'm making an offer for you um, as a buyer, I want to know that you have the money in your account, right? I want to be able to document it for, for, for my own reasoning, right? I want to make sure that you have money um, that you say you have so that we can get it done. And, and most of the times the lender's already verified that you have the funds to be able to get the pre-approval anyhow. But nevertheless, a lot of times, when, well, actually, 100% of the time when I'm submitting an offer for a client, I'm submitting proof that the buyer has that down payment so that the listing agent can see, hey, listen, he says he's putting 20% down. Here's a bank statement that shows that he has or they or she has the 20% to put down. Therefore, you know that we're good to go. We're not having to, to worry about funds coming in. We're not borrowing money. We're not refinancing money out of a property and coming in last minute, blah, 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 right? So we want that done. I want it done sooner than later. Now, you don't actually have to give that money to anyone, um, you know, the down payment until the loan's ready to close. And so until the end of that, outside of your initial escrow deposit, uh, but that's a whole different conversation. But here's the thing. This is where I screwed up. So a couple of weeks ago, had a property, a uh, fixer property on the market. Actually, it wasn't on the market. It was an off-market deal and went through a couple of different buyers. Uh, the reason for it is buyer needed a, or seller needed a specific price to be able to sell his property and move out of state and buy the property that he was looking at in cash. And so for him, he needed a certain amount. And the problem with that certain amount is really pushing the envelope on what that property once it was fixed up, once the money was put into that property, what it could actually sell for and how much profit was in the deal. Now, if you were a homeowner buying that property, you could have paid that price all day long because you don't need that profit at the end of the deal in order to really maximize, if you will. Whereas investors putting their money, they don't want to tie their money up for a $10,000, $15,000 profit on a $650,000 purchase, $660 purchase. They want, you know, they want a, a, much, a much more sizable return. Well, here's the thing. We went into escrow a couple of different times. The seller, in this case, goes into escrow on his upleg. So he, he goes under contract on the property that he's buying and he needs this one to sell. Well, because we went into escrow twice before um, and they fell out, I'm talking to the agent on the other side saying, listen, you know, I'm, I'm trying other investors. I'm trying to put deals together to make this happen. And she's telling me, well, we're running out of, you know, we're running out of time on this side to keep this deal together. So me, you know, trying to put deals together, call uh, one of the, the guys I know, he has an investor client, makes an offer. They make the offer that we need, the numbers that we need. Well, guess what? Jeb didn't ask for the bank statement for the proof of funds. It was a cash offer. For whatever reason, Jeb overlooked it because I was just happy to get the offer. Submit it to the client. All is good. Well, guess what happens? We come to find out that the seller doesn't have the cash. The seller is refinancing a property, actually taking a home equity line out on his own home 
to be able to come in with the difference to buy this property. In fact, they were getting a hard money loan for part of it. So it ended up being a complete fiasco when, quite frankly, I should have verified that up front. I screwed up because I was lost in the deal, trying to make things happen, trying to put the deal together, get you know ink to paper so that we could show the other side, hey, we got a deal so we can move forward. Well, we ended up needing about a week extension to make this thing happen because of the delay in the process. So with that said, it's important to document that money. And, you know, people screw up and I screwed up. So there you go. Uh, but it ended up happening. Everybody was happy, so on and so forth. Uh, Raul asked the question, can I sell a property with a pool that is not functional? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah, you can sell a house with everything not functional, uh, but it's likely needs to be reflected in the price. Um, you know, if you are aware that it's not functioning, it's it's important to disclose that up front so you're not wasting anybody's time. Let your agent know so they can put that in uh, into the multiple listing service so that any buyers looking at that property, if they're not able to tell visually by looking at it, which some well, sometimes you can, that it's not working, that they know um, that it's not working. So well, yeah, but yeah, Jeb, no problem. That, that last part that you said is important. Um, if it's visually not operating, the appraiser is going to see the buyer's lender orders an appraisal, the appraiser is going to see that it is a green mucky mess or that there is no water in it or that it's full of mud. Those are all problems. Um, almost impossible to work around if it is obviously a non-functioning pool that presents a health and safety issue. Had actually a viewer to the show last year, she inherited a property, cool house. Uh, I think it was out in Cucamonga and had a pool that they actually wanted to fill in because they were going to keep it and rent it out. It was her dad's home. Um, and we had to pay about 500 bucks for someone to go out and do a crazy shock treatment and add some more water to it so that when the appraiser went out, it looked like it was a functioning pool full of water because lenders will, for the most part, have a problem with, uh, with gross pools that appear to be a health and safety issue. Good stuff. Um, she has a question. I started rewatching episodes of you talking with other realtors around the country. Do you plan on doing anything like that again in the future? If you want to see it, let me know. Um, I, I'm happy to do that. Uh, I never thought those videos performed very well on my channel. Therefore, I stopped doing them. Uh, but if you want me to talk to other realtors, let me know. Uh, I'm happy to have that conversation. In fact, we can do it on the podcast too uh, so that it's it's all-encompassing. Uh, but yeah, I, I enjoy I mean, I, I'm having a lot of those conversations anyway. They're just not on video. So let me know and we can make that happen. ZL says, will a privacy fence increase the home's value and recoup the cost? possibly in some markets, maybe, um, you know, typically it's hard. Oftentimes it can be difficult for the improvement to your house to pay for itself. So, and what I mean by that is a $50,000 kitchen remodel doesn't mean that your value increases in $50,000 by $50,000. So you, you adding $40,000 solar panels to your house doesn't mean you're value is up $40,000. Adding a $5,000 privacy fence doesn't mean, so it's hard to say for sure whether or not it adds that amount of value, uh, but it might add a better lifestyle for you. It might be, it might add more than just the dollar value, if that makes sense. Um, and, and what I often say with this sort of thing is, you know, does it for resale, does it help you in resale and maybe not a dollar for dollar exchange and getting more money, but does it bring 
potentially more buyers that might be interested in your property because you've done that. And in turn, maybe result in a higher dollar amount because now you have a bigger pool of buyers to choose from, if that makes sense. So I would look at it one of a, a couple of different ways. If privacy is important to you, but it doesn't give you dollar for dollar, then it may still be worth it at the end of the day. So to each his own with some of these things. I like this comment. It just says Jeb is the man. So with three Dobermans. I like them. I like hey, the Why not? Yeah. My client right now has a Doberman, nine years old. It's like our fifth or sixth one. This is the, the, uh, the most timid, like just like legs shake. Like this is not the Doberman that I know that I got bit from. I actually got bit in the, in the quad by one when I was, I don't know, like eight or nine years old and not the same one. This one would not bite you. This one would just lick you. Um, so, but I like, like the picture there. Let's see here. Uh, Josh, we got a lot of good questions. Want to take a minute here and explain this. I think this is a hot topic at the moment still, and a lot of people don't understand how it works. Can you explain a rate buy down and a double buy or a two, one, forget what it's called. Jeb, I, I want to show off first because the last time we had this name, you and I had a debate over what or how you would say it. It's Josue. 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 Josue Valenzuela would like to know the 2-1 buy-down. 2-1 buy-down is a situation where uh, most likely the seller is going to give you a credit. It costs a little bit less than 2% of your loan amount to buy the interest rate down 2% below the market for the first year. After the, the first year, it's going to go up 1%. So it's 1% below the note rate. And then after 24 payments, it goes to your note rate. So it's a short-term buy-down. Essentially, you're subsidizing that payment with the credit from the seller. Good stuff. Um, this is uh, another question here that I saw pop up and it's a little bit further down. So just bear with me here. Um, I got credit for getting his name right. There you go. Nice work. Uh, get this one right then. Oh, I, I have to do some research. We'll get it right the second time around, just like the last one. Uh, anyway, the question is how to determine potential rent when buying a multi-unit property. So what's going to happen is when you buy a multi-unit property, if you're getting financing on that property, you're going to have to get a rental survey on that property. That should provide, give you a really good idea of what market rents are. But with that said, before ever getting to that stage, you should have a real estate agent on your side that should be able to give you a pretty good idea of what market rents are. If your agent's not able to do that, you might want to find a, another agent. So, um, but you should be able to get it from your agent and which case you're going through the process, the appraiser, any investment property, multi-unit or not is going to require some sort of rental survey so that the lender can verify that the rents are um, essentially what you're saying they are on the loan application. A version of that question, people say, well, do we have to use, uh, if I'm buying multiple units uh, and it's all rented, do I have to use the, the current rents or the market rents? Generally, we can use the market rents. What I caution people uh, to be um, careful when you and your agent are actually fairly likely to be able to determine pretty accurately what you'll be able to rent those at, uh, at current market rents. Market rent surveys from appraisers are almost always lower than that, but also almost always higher than the current rents on most properties. You'll always see, almost always, very often you'll see in a listing for a multi-unit property, upside in rents, rents well below market. So um, just be careful with that, that you're not giving yourself too much credit for rents if you absolutely positively need it to qualify. 
And in case you didn't know, uh, UNC just beat Boston College. Um, just thought I'd throw that out there. I'm Is that their first fan. win this year? <laughs> Pretty close to it. We're, we're 20 and 12 this year, Josh. Uh, we're not, the average is that we're not doing very well. Uh, but it doesn't matter. You know why? Because we beat Duke last year. Krzyzewski, <laughs> last game ever. His last game. We beat him. So he has to live with that for the rest of his life. That's all I care about. That's all. That's it. Anyway, sidetrack. Sorry, guys. Um, how soon after a purchase can you refinance? There is no requirement. We've covered this a million times, especially during the refinance boom when rates were really low. There's a difference in the question right now. I'm assuming you're getting ready to buy, you're worried rates are high, and in two months, three months, they could be lower. Can you refinance? Yes, you absolutely can. There, for the most part, 99% of loans do not have prepayment penalties. There is no problem for you to refinance. If I do your loan today, and in three months, rates are a percent lower, you go to another lender and you refinance with them, I'm going to have what's called an early payoff penalty, and that's going to be unpleasant for me. So be cool. If that happens, go back to your original lender, say, hey, rates dropped fast, hard. I need to take advantage of that. At least give them the opportunity to earn your business on the refinance so they can make money on that to fill the hole that they're going to have to pay with that early payoff penalty. All right. Good idea. Uh, Anya says, podcast video idea stipulations. Um can we do a full episode on stipulations, Josh? That's a fancy word. Is it contingencies? What is it? I'm not sure. That's why I threw it your way without asking. On, really Anya's, Anya's going to have to clarify for us. The different things get called different things in different parts of the country. Yeah. Um, um, it, they, okay. used to, they used to call yeah. conditions on your mortgage stipulations. Well, that's so, what I was thinking. That's where I was going yeah. with. That was my thought, but that's might not be the same. So, yeah. Okay. Let's get clarification. Uh, Raul has another question. Says, what would you tell a client who has an outdated or has a dated, unattractive housing features, who has unattractive housing features, sorry, but they seem uh, they see them as positives that should increase the value. Those are difficult conversations to have, uh, but they're necessary conversations to have. You know, it depends. It depends on the client, depends on the person. Um, you, you might mention it uh, in, in, and make sure they're aware that you mention it and go forward. If, if they still see them as positives and let the market give you feedback, um, and then use the market, a third party's feedback in order to relay what you really want to say. Sometimes we'll have a conversation with a seller and I might bring something up and not get into detail, but then bring a stager through and guess who's the bad guy in that case, the stager. We tell the stager, hey, make sure you bring this up. And the stager is the bad guy. Takes the pressure off me. We get the point across. And then they open it up to me and say, Jeff, what do you think? Mm, unfortunately, I have to agree with the stager. So there are conversations that should be had. Um, it can even happen when, you know, somebody smokes in a house. And uh, it's, you know, it's just a lot of times they don't even smell it. And non-smokers, it can be an unbearable. Like I sold a house during pandemic that was awful uh, smell-wise. She didn't smell it at all. And so it was a difficult conversation. And even then, as she tried to hide it, mask it, fix it, it wasn't um, there. And it reflected in the value of the home and it sold for less because of it. So, you know, you just try to tell people, hey, look, if you're trying to maximize price, you're trying to maximize dollar, these are some things that we have to take into account or reconsider um, you know, in our pricing strategy for you to maximize price. And so never an easy conversation, but a lot of times it's a necessary conversation. 
Um, Josh, we're, go we're going a lot of the recent questions. I know we had some that were further back. Um, you know, do we do we want to bring those up? Um, I'm trying to find if there's any good here. Uh, Fred asked if we'll see rates 5% by the end of September. Do you think that's uh, – there are – gurus out there that think that a 5% handle is something you could see um, at some point this year. You think they're, I mean, when you say five, I think they're asking at five. Uh, yeah. 5.00 would require, average. would require a 10 year treasury well down into the twos or a moderation to the, the long-term uh, a 3% 10 year with the normal long-term 2% spread to mortgages would get you to 5%. We're just hanging on below 4% right now. That's a full percent move. Could it happen? Yes. Um, it, it, but it requires that and moderation in that gap. So my gut would be that it's unlikely. But uh, as recently as a month ago, the market was comfortable with 575 um, for, for most borrowers, 599. So uh, I think it is likely that we have something in, in the high fives by the end of the year. Um, when I say likely, 50-50, uh, 60-40, I wouldn't go way out on a limb with that. Um, this market has defied logic and people have kept spending longer than what the Fed expected. And that's kind of where, where we're at right now. All right. Uh, World Trekker says, uh, is a hot tub time machine, no, is a hot tub above ground, uh, can it be part of the appraisal? Is it good improvement when selling? It can be part of the appraisal, uh, but I would say that it's probably going to add little to no value at all. Um, maybe, you know, above ground. I mean, what's a brand new one cost? 10 grand? I mean, like a nice one? I, I mean, I'm guessing. I'm not like, you know, saying that as a derogatory thing. Um, so I, I don't, it's not going to add a lot of value. So a good improvement, not really. It's one of those personal things. Like you had a spa. Um, I'm not know, sure. It's, it's, it's not permanently attached, Jeb. I'm, I'm, I think it's personal property. I don't think you can yeah. you can give it value in an appraisal. I, if, I think if it's on a platform that's like, again, I could be wrong. I, I don't know the answer to that for certain. Um, I think if it's built out, like there's a platform for it, it's there. Um, even though it's above ground, I think it could be used, but maybe I'm wrong. So, but at the end of the day, is it a good improvement for value? I, I don't say, I don't think so. Um, I don't think it adds a lot personally, just a personal preference. Uh, let's see here. Jeb, I, I just Googled it for you. On average, you can expect to spend 400 to $18,000 for an above ground spa. It's Ooh, fairly $400. wide range. How about 18,000? What does it do for 18,000? I've got some LEDs and so it does, they do they have them with TVs and stuff at them. So like that's what I'm expecting. And speakers and the whole thing. So yeah, I mean, I guess when I said 10, I'm thinking like average. Um, yeah. can you go higher? Sure. I'm sure you can probably get a hundred thousand dollar one if you really want to spend it. You can probably swim in it, right? I mean, some of those you can swim in, uh, that are above ground. So nevertheless, uh, really personal preference more than anything else. Uh, here, Josh, we get this question often. It's a good question. Something that people need to know before they file for the divorce. Uh, my friend got divorced. Uh, his ex paid him half of the house, but she doesn't want to refinance because of rates. Do you have to refinance to get the name off the mortgage? Okay. You, you do not have to. So remember FHA loans are assumable. VA loans are assumable. You can go back to the servicer, prove that the, the remaining owning spouse can uh, qualify on their own and assume that loan. 
people um, correctly know that Fannie and Freddie do not allow assumptions on fixed rate mortgages, but in the instance of a divorce, they will entertain them. I was actually talking to a VP at one of our big lenders because I have a client who's in this situation. Um, unfortunately, he wouldn't. We can get him qualified um, through some quirks in the guidelines. He can't qualify. He, they won't approve him if he goes back uh, and asks them to do this. But in the event of a divorce, you document the divorce, you document that you can qualify. There's no guarantee, but you can request an assumption from the lender to release the uh, borrowing now non-spouse, the ex-spouse from liability on that. So uh, it's probably going to be more common as long as rates stay elevated. You know, Even the difference between a 3% rate to a 4%, most people are going to balk at that. No. No, agreed. Uh, good stuff to know, though. So I actually learned something there, Josh. I learned something by watching and listening to our own show. <laughs> it's amazing. Are you, an, are you an educated home seller now, home realtor? No, no, oh. no more so than before. But I just I gained a, a little piece of knowledge. Not any more educated. Education comes, uh, you know, in, in different forms, Josh. Uh, let's see here. I had a question there. Would you, you just took it off? I'm oh. under contract for a new build, but delayed for a fourth time. Close date was February 23rd, but builder is now quoting a close now not quoting a close date. My five and a half percent rate expires 328. What happens if he keeps delaying? So I guess the first question is, is your lender the builder? Uh, because there you might have a little bit more uh, leeway in getting an extension on that rate. But Josh, what happens if it expires? I think the answer is buried somewhere in the 175-page contract that you signed with the, the builder. Um, is it the builder's lender? I'm hoping it's the builder's lender. But I would almost be willing to bet that that contract tells you that there are a million things that are outside of the builder's control and they cannot guarantee your close date and you are still bound to the terms of that contract. So it's um, somewhat of uh, your, your catch 22, like you're not you're not going to win in that situation, most likely, but we couldn't say for certain without digging through that monster contract the builder had you sign. Good stuff. Uh, dude, we got a lot of really good questions tonight. A lot of stuff that never comes up that I like. Um, so guys, keep the questions coming and we'll do our best to answer them. If you're finding any value, hit that thumbs up. Uh, Brittany. Brittany has a question I don't know that we've ever received. Uh, how far back on your credit report would be looked at during the loan process? I have a few months within the last year where my credit cards were maxed out. So can the lender see anything beyond the current balances, Josh? So this is funny. Um, about four or five years ago, it's called trended data. And it was supposed to be picked up, it's supposed to be required for us uh, to provide to the lender. And the automated underwriting system would pick that up to see how you historically use credit to prevent you from paying off all your debts, boosting your score and coming in at the 11th hour and getting the best possible terms. I don't even know that we provide the trended data anymore, and I've never noticed any difference in the automated underwriting systems. FHA, VA, uh, USDA, I don't think ever took it into account, but I wouldn't expect it to be an issue. If you had a late payment, it's going to pick that up. But if you had maxed cards and you paid them down, you should be absolutely fine with that. It pays far more attention to your credit score than the trended data if it's paying any attention to the trended data. And just for those of you playing at home, if you wanted to know, if you miss 
place of payment, um, that will stay on your credit for seven years. If you have public records, uh, judgment, bankruptcy, foreclosure, that stuff will stay on there for 10 years before it falls off. So I know you weren't asking about that, Brittany, um, but it can be important uh, for people. Uh, like I, I don't know if I told the story. Back in 2015, I screwed up and don't know what in the hell I was thinking and missed a credit card payment. And when that just fell off in 2022, credit score went from like 790 to, to 820, like within a few days. So it does make a big difference, even an old late falling off. Um, so uh, hopefully that information can help some of you. Uh, and Brandon came back and said, the lender is not the builder. So uh, Brandon, what I would do is I would have my agent um, reach out to the builder and say, listen, can anything be done here? Is there any credits that we can offer? Is there anything we can do to pay for a lock extension on our loan so that we don't lose this lock. If you're in an area that has a ton of inventory for whatever reason, um, Southern California is probably not one of those markets where you're buying a house where you're having this problem. But if you're in a market that has a lot of inventory, you, you could threaten the idea of canceling if you can't do this. Uh, and the builder might be, you know, be willing to do things they wouldn't otherwise do because they need to sell that house. Right. So, kind of look at what's around you inventory wise and see if you have any uh, ground to stand on with a negotiation. Uh, but I, I would definitely go out and try to get something from them in order to, to make the deal move forward. Um, and, and your agent, you know, if your agent's the builder, that's okay too. Whoever it is, you need to have that conversation. I wouldn't walk away without having it. How's that? Um, Raul has another good question. It says, can a room with two different door entrances and a stand-up Ikea movable closet be considered a bedroom in selling a property? Here's the thing. Um, it, it, these types of things are, however, the buyer, the person looking at the home wants to perceive it, right? I'll walk into houses all the time that don't have a bedroom and we're like, this is pretty much a bedroom. We know where the closet was. Maybe there isn't a closet, but we know they're considering it a bedroom. And so it depends on whether the buyer wants to consider that thing a bedroom or not. Um, but if it doesn't have a closet and it was never a bedroom, chances are the appraisal is not going to reflect it as a bedroom in that scenario. Whereas, you know, if it has a real closet, um, I've seen properties that were on tax records, two bedrooms, the appraiser gives it the third bedroom because it actually has the closet. Now, a movable closet is a different scenario. Two points of, of um, you know, egress or, 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 or doors being able to get in and out of the property constitutes it's probably not a bedroom. But from a, a buying perspective, if the buyer wants to think it's a bedroom and whatever, then so be it. Um, are you going to be able to add that into the value of your home now saying you have another bedroom? I think the answer is no. No to that. There's, there's two kind of questions there, Jeb. Can the appraiser give it value as a bedroom? Can he mark it as a bedroom on the appraisal report? Yes, but does it matter if the market doesn't value it that way? If buyers coming through aren't looking at that uh, as a bedroom, um, it, it's probably more valuable in a rapidly appreciating market where appraisers were having a hard time hitting values. Um, the market's gonna tell you what, what the value of that room is. Good stuff. Uh, Kayla has a follow-up to Brittany's question saying, how does four to six-year-old collections affect the loan process or qualification, Josh? Depends on the size. Small collections that are aged are generally not problematic. If they've gone to charge off, this sounds crazy. Charge off is better because that is saying the lender that you owe the money, the debtor, the debt, you're the debtor, the, the 
the Debt company that, that whoever it is that you owe money, um, if they've written it off, so they've gone to the IRS, called it bad debt, took their deduction for that. They have uh, told you that they are no longer trying to collect that debt. So there's no risk of them coming back and getting a judgment against you or your home. Um, collections like FHA, anything less than $2,000 in aggregate, they're going to ignore it. It's going to get an impact your credit score and will be seen by automated underwriting. Um, conventional loans don't have that guideline of, of what it happens when it's you know, less or more than any certain amount, but it looks at the automated underwriting is looking at it, seeing your credit score, seeing the collections. It's been a long time since I've had to pay off a collection on uh, a conventional loan. And I think it would come down to the size of it. Is it likely to be a problem for the investor? Would someone come back? You know, I, I see things like on a car repossession where someone owes fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars from five years ago with taxes, interest, penalties, all that stuff. It could be twenty something thousand dollars now. A lender might rightfully be concerned that they could come sue you and get a judgment uh, against the property. Uh, for the most part, it's not a problem. If they're little stuff, medical stuff, I wouldn't worry about it. If they're up into the thousands, you really want to talk to a lender and have them walk you through that. I don't know. You guys might have missed it, but Josh said something really profound. I can't even say it. It all comes down to size, the size of it. I'm just saying the, the <laughs> I can't even say it with a straight face. I so wanted to be able to just pull that off, but I couldn't do it. All right. Never mind, guys. We're just going, you know, it's been an hour and 45 minutes. I'm losing it over here. All right. Uh let's see. This isn't actually an easy one. Let's roll through DTI this. So Brian, Brian Wands back and yeah. says, does, yep. does a jumbo loan have different DTI requirements than Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae? Yes, they do. Um, most jumbo lenders are going to want you at 43% or below. It relates to the qualified mortgage guidelines, even though those were changed. Um, when they were first implemented, 43% was important for them to have a QM, a qualified mortgage, which gives them some protections uh, against you uh, coming after them later for making you a loan you don't qualify for. Now, that being said, they can go above it. Um, some will go to 45, some will go to 50. I have a jumbo investor that, this is crazy, Jeb, for every... I think it was $15,000 you have in reserves, uh, or it might've been every two months that you have in reserves, they would let you go up another percent in DTI. So someone that had like 50 months of, of reserves could go to like a 60% DTI. So every lender on the jumbo is making their own guidelines. And depending on whether they're a bank, a credit union, a mortgage bank, it will, will tell you where that falls in. But I would count on 43. You probably have a few options at 45 and a handful that may go higher if you need it. Good stuff. Uh, World Trekker says, is paid off solar a good improvement to have when you sell? Um, I think it depends on the age of the solar. Um, having it paid off is is best case scenario for a buyer uh, because they reap the benefits of it. Um, having older solar, having uh, leased solar or, you know, even the case where, you know, they lease your roof and you get a reduced amount, not good scenarios in my, uh, in my experience or not something I would recommend, um, paid off is a completely different animal. I think there's, there's value in that, but understand as a buyer, there's, you know, reoccurring cost and recurring costs rather, um, and maintenance things that will happen in the future that you need to be aware of. Uh, but depends. It depends on how much your utility bills would be without it, um, and really how much value that it that it adds to to that home. Um, yeah, it, to each his own, depending on what's running, what what uh, big appliances, pools, you know, air conditionings, that sort of thing that you're uh, constantly using. 
Josh, Jeb, yes. Let, let's go through this one. What are your thoughts on this? They've asked a couple of times, so let's get to this one. Do you recommend renting a condo for a year and wait for the market to get better before we purchase a condo? So I believe they're here in Southern California from the original question. Um, said they are ready to buy now, but would you recommend waiting eight months, waiting a year? Um, I, I mean, my, may, my, I mean I, I'm not against it entirely. Um, I, I guess it depends on why I'm waiting. I think that's really the question. Uh, you know, under the question is, are you waiting because you want prices to go lower? Are you waiting because you think something is going to happen to make it more affordable? Or are you waiting because you're looking at the market going inventory sucks? I don't see anything out there. I like I'm tired of banging my head against the wall looking at this. I'm just going to take a break. And I think if it's the latter one, sure, I, I think it's okay. I don't think there's a rush to go out and buy that property because I could see a market next year with values similar to where they are today. Um, not a lot of appreciation, not a lot of values going down. God knows what happens to rates between that time. But if you can find the right house now, you have the longer term time rise and all the things that we talk about, it's a year of paying down the principal on that mortgage um, versus waiting a year. And, and you're in at today's rate. So if rates went higher, you're in a better position than you would be in the year. If rates come down enough, you're able to, you know, Assuming values don't tank, which I don't expect them to, you're potentially in a position to refinance and maybe take advantage of that. So I think there's pros, there's cons. It really comes down to what you're waiting for. Um, and, and are you going to be in a better position to buy or get something? You know, is it going to change your scenario by waiting a year? Does that make sense, Josh? Yeah, 100%. So a couple of things follow up here. Kayla comes back and says, yes, they're all under 2000. We are doing FHA. So for the most part, you're going to be fine because yours are tiny. So if the size matters, yours are tiny. So you're going to be okay. Um, we also, where did Dina's question go? Um, Dina basically had a question saying, am I crazy uh, for having a DTI of 46% after getting my house? The price is here. I can't get my DTI much lower. Um, not uh, an easy one to answer. What I will always say, I cannot tell you what you can afford. I can tell you what you can qualify for. So if you can qualify for it, a lender has has proven that making loans to such borrowers uh, hasn't presented undue risk in the long haul. So what I would ask is, what is your income trajectory? Do you have any bills that are going to be paid off? Um, car payment going away, student loans that are going to be forgiven in the next two years. Um, any number of those things that could impact their trajectory of your debt to income ratio. Over time, you're going to make more and that will get more manageable, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be comfortable right now. You need to go through your budget and expectations for future income and debts. Good stuff. Easy one to answer. Jose says play set or swing set on backyard increase value. No, um, not that I'm aware of. Uh, it would have to be a, a monster <laughs> playset something one of those ones they have the the, the, the yeah. show on hgtv like, like a full treehouse type thing to, to be able to do it so um i don't see a world in which that happens so here's the deal you guys have been awesome tonight this has been probably the best episode we've had i don't know josh six months with the number of people the questions um just the audience in general so for that i want to say thank you to you guys um you guys are what provide you guys make the show right if we have a bunch of uh you know, not so interesting questions and questions over and over again. It's just, you know, it gets boring. It, it takes time, you know, the show just drags on. Uh, but when you provide new questions, it, uh, it just, it gives people that have been listening a long time, more things to consider, more education to, uh, to take on. So um, for that, I'm thankful. So with that said, if you found any value tonight, do us a favor, hit that thumbs up. 
feel free to subscribe to the channel. Um, if you're interested in the podcast, go check it out. It's on all the podcast platforms out there. If you'd rather watch the videos, they're on YouTube. So you can check out that YouTube channel as well. It's very small at the moment. It's just growing. So if you want to help us grow it, we would be thankful for that. Uh, but Josh, any parting words tonight? Almost two hours on. Um, answered a hell of a lot of questions. Uh, but where do you want to leave the audience? I would just say you got to go with your gut in this market. There's a lot of questions whether a 46% debt to income ratio is the right thing, whether buying now, waiting till next year is the right thing. You guys in those two specific instances told us you want to buy a house. You're in the market. You just The time is right for you in your life to become a homeowner. Um, so is there any compelling reason not to do it or how should you go about it? Just trust your gut. Do your research. The fact that you're here watching two doofuses talk for two hours on YouTube about mortgage and real estate tells me you're doing your research. You're going to make an educated decision. Um, so from that perspective, uh, do your research, do your due diligence, trust your gut, make a good decision. Awesome. Uh, we will see you again next week, guys. Till then, adios. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube and make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.